Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Q-Tip is one of hip-hop's greatest MCs and producers. As a member of A Tribe Called Quest, he helped to shape the sound of hip-hop throughout the 90s. The group's exceptional run of full lengths became a blueprint for MCs looking to balance the literate and the absurd, as well as producers searching for the perfect and unexpected break. Since Tribe split in 1998, Q-Tip has kept busy with a solo career that has included multiple solo albums, as well as countless productions and guest appearances. In this talk at the 2013 Red Bull Music Academy in New York, Q-Tip discussed songwriting and making music that stands out with host Jeff Mao. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please do welcome Q-Tip. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, sir. Um, what do you use as a setup now? If you're at home, you're starting to, to make something. Yeah, well, at currently, you know, I just built a studio. So currently, you know, I'm dealing with the Renaissance, the MPC Renaissance, the Ableton, the, the uh, Push, Live 9. Um, and I like those because they're really like instruments to me. And, you know, I'm from the school of, like, putting my hands on it, you know what I'm saying, and tapping it out and playing it and putting that feeling in it, you know what I'm saying? So I feel like that those 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 boxes, you know, enable me to still carry on that tradition but still, you know, look ahead. And other than that, you know, turntables, I keep it pretty, pretty simple. I also play, you know what I'm saying, keys and all that stuff. So, and I have players I work with so sometimes we'll get on something and then I'll take it what we played and chop it and we chop it or I'll tell them to play something so it's just a it's like it's, it's such a it's, it's just such a crazy uh, combination of things but primarily those are the boxes I work is there you know being a, um, a vocalist and a producer do you you know is there a particular process or a starting point for your process as far as do you have a song concept do you put on your producer's hat and just begin making a beat i mean i have sometimes i have song concepts if it if it if i get sh struck with something really really you know if something really just resonates with me you know i'll uh do the, the concept but i tend to really I guess the producer side of me I tend to really lean on the music and then I, I think it's a challenge for me to kind of become a part of the music or become an instrument in it you know what I mean but still kind of hold to the traits of I guess when I'm emceeing of emceeing and lyricism and all of that but I really try to let the music guide and, and dictate just because I feel like we do so much talking and our our literal voices are heard so much that the the idea of music leading you that's just like a a a different part of you know science and nature to me you know that you can't necessarily describe and i'd like to kind of like let that thing that you may not have that 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 just keeps you know involuting and evolving and I like to go into that mysterious place. So I like to let the the music guide what I do lyrically and all that. Uh, when did you, um, you know, when did you decide that producing was going to be your thing? <clears throat> I mean, I always was, was kind of into it like that. Um, you know, I started out DJing, you know, as a kid, probably like around... 11, 12, I started out MCing actually, but 11, 12, like the DJing thing was hand in hand because it was, the DJ was the king. And um, I would make 
pause tapes, which was a big thing yeah. for kids back in the 80s to do if you, like, had ideas for music because we didn't have any setups, we didn't have any track machines, we didn't have any of that stuff. So what we usually had was some janky-ass, like, stereo system that your moms or your grandmother had, you know what I'm saying, with the... It was usually wood, and you'd lift up the top. I don't know if y'all remember, and you it's almost like you'd stick your hand like it was a pantry or something, and it was a <laughs> turntable there, and then below it, it had, like, dual cassette recorders and stuff. And I was lucky enough that mine's, that we had in the house was a dub one. So, and my dad was a huge, like, record collector and jazz and dudes and stuff, so I just started making pause tapes and stuff like that. So I guess that's when I knew I was going to be a producer was probably around, like, the pause tape era, like, 12. Yeah. Who was Jay Nice? Ha, ha, ha. That was my MC name, Jay Nice. Um, yeah, that was me. And was, was Jay Nice nice? Or? <laughs> no, I was, I, was, I was all right, you know. And the thing, like, um, you know how today everybody is, like, well, a couple of years ago, everybody was like Lil, like Lil Mama, Lil Kim, Lil John, Lil. You saw the Lil prefix on every rap. And then now it's like Young, Young Berg, Young Jeezy, Young Money, Young, you know what I mean? So back then, the thing was nice or ski, right? And those things came out of, unfortunately, like a, a cocaine thing, you know what I mean? Because when you get a freeze and, you know, you be nice, people in New York, you know, you get nice. You be like, oh, I'm nice. And that was like kind of how they would say, I'm nice. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. Kids, you can go. So it's just an adult. And then um, ski was like, you know, literally you skied up. Like, you know what I'm saying? So you would hear somebody like Jamal Ski or East Ski or, you know, Cool ski rock or something like that. The ski came from like, and the and the nices, you know, came from cocaine kind of like mm-hmm. talk. But I heard Jay Nice sounded like LL Cool J back in the day. I did, I did. I, everybody sounded like LL. I mean, see, because when You're I from first Queens, heard, Queens. I'm from Queens, yeah. but when I first heard actually Mo D went to Treacherous Three, this style to me was like. One that kind of influenced LL or influenced T La Rock. It, it it was like we used to call it like intelligent rap because back then it used to be like I got all the gusto and I'm on the go. We're gonna rock to the beat in stereo. And Mo D was like clean and he was saying shit. You know what I mean? And um, you know that influenced LL. And LL was from around. Our way in, in Queens. I grew up in Jamaica, Queens, St. Albans. And they was like the t- right over there on, in Hollis. And um, them, Run DMC, grew up in my neighborhood. Well, I grew up in their neighborhood. <laughs> it was Run DMC, LL Cool J, um, Fife and I grew up over there, 50 Cent, Ja Rule, DJ Irv, Peppa from Salt and Peppers from over there. A lot of lot of MCs from over there, but LL, yeah, I kind of resembled that kind of style there. All right, so sorry, guys. How did we get to this? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Hey there. At this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, let's go back to Couch Wisdom. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's the Jungle Brothers. That's who I, I came up with. We all went to high school together. So, you know, my neighborhood had all of these MCs. And, you know, back then you'd have to go, in New York City, you'd have to go to your zone high school. Yeah. And my neighborhood was pretty tough. And the, the, my zone high school was Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson, I remember that shit just always being on the news and was... Besides Bishop Laughlin back then and Boys and it was like one of the most craziest high schools. And I was like, I am not going there. So um, uh, I wound up going to Murray Bertram High School, which was like like a specialized high school. It was for business careers. You had to get like 
recommendation to get in there and have like a B average or all that shit. So I managed to like get in there. And um, when I got there, I went to freshman orientation and I first met Brother Jay. Whose name was Jason Hunter. And for those of you I don't know, Brother Jay was the lead MC of this crew called the X Clan, which was like popping back then. And um I met him and then I met Shazam, who was Africa from the Jungle Brothers, and Mike G, who was also from the Jungle Brothers, and met him near. His uncle was Red Alert, famed um, New York City DJ from the Zulu Nation. And I met Ali in Bertram as well. It was just a lot of MCs up there And you know they We did this in high school too We did the promo That was the first record I Africa and I produced that record together And uh, This was like the first What year was this? Yeah 88 like 88 87 I think Around there It was the first record I did I was 17 And uh, You had equipment at that point Or were you going to At this point yeah. No I was Um when I met up with Ali, Ali's uncle worked for Columbia Records as a promotion guy. And he also played bass. And he was like the cool uncle or whatever. He smoked cools and shit. And, you know, he he had like the crazy Columbia jacket that he wore all the time, even in the summer. It just said Columbia. <laughs> and we was like, ah, wow. You know, and... um He'd bring home like Public Enemy records and all that shit, and bring home like whatever Columbia swag he had. Yeah. He also had a four-track machine because he played bass. So I would take my pause tapes over there, and I just start messing with the four-track machine, Ali and I. And I first got over there probably like '85. I was 15, and the first two records I bought over there was this record called Ripe and Benita Applebaum. And I was 15, yeah. So that's how I, I, I first started doing, like, formal joints. And that was what I was working on. Uh, you mentioned um, Zulu Nation briefly. It's been something that's that you're affiliated with over the years. And, you know, just to quickly sort of get us up to date, you actually have your new album that's coming out is entitled The Last Zulu. I was just wondering, you know, given that this is a thread throughout a lot of your career, if you want to sort of speak to it since we're kind of at the inception right here. Um, well, the Zulu Nation, um, Africa Bambada and Zulu Nation, you know what I'm saying? Um, it came out of, you know, a gang lore here in New York. They used to be the Black Spades and he was one of the warlords there and he decided, you know, had some epiphany that killing each other wasn't the way and um, you know back then the gangs used to have dancers they used to have your color but then you a crew would also have their dancers and they were called b-boys and if there was a rumble the dancers would come out and do dances that you know kind of symbolized you know which gang it was before they got down and um, you know Bam just was like nah we can't do this so he was a big fan of that movie, Shaka Zulu, and he, you know, turned the whole thing into the Zulu Nation, and it stood for, the, the his mantra is peace, unity, love, and having fun. And everything, all kind of music was, you know, at your arsenal. And Fat Five Freddy bought Bam downtown. He was probably the first... You know, DJ crew, the Zulu Nation crew was the first one to come downtown. They played at CBGB's, and Bam and them got cool with like Arthur Baker and Blondie and and um, you know Malcolm McLaren. They used to run in those kind of circles. So his thing was just always like worldwide, and I, I appreciated that vision. You know what I'm saying? And I just felt like, you know, the new record that I'm working on, I felt like. You know, sometimes I mill about and I kick stuff around like, hi, it's not like an instrument. And I get all like curmudgeon about it. And I, I just kind of wanted to make, put myself in it and just be kind of really vulnerable and self-effacing and honest. Yeah. You know, kind of like uh, if you listen to like Dark Side of the Moon, by F you know, Floyd, you feel like the character or that guy just dealt with like being... You know, insubordination and, 
you know, depression and, be, and being in poverty and questioning the reason of life, you know what I'm saying? I just feel like where we're at, the state of the world, the state of things, that, you know, and it, it was a very introspective record. And I, I just feel like, you know, I'm at the point where I wanted to make something that's kind of like that because I feel like a lot of people kind of toil with those premises. Yeah. So what does the last Zulu mean then to you? You know, like one of the last people who feel like, um, am I the last person to think that, that uh, like there's nothing wrong with kind of having a private life and holding to secrets? Does everything have to be available? Like the reality TV shit, like is it, is, am I one of the last people to really believe that, you know, having some sort of talent as something really can get you currency in this world? Or do you have to, like, kind of be a buffoon or, you know, some sort of vixen to kind of, like, make it? Like, you know, just holding to those kind of principles and questioning them, not saying that they're right. Or wrong, but just posing that question because I feel like a lot of us in, the, in this room kind of ask those questions as well. You know what I mean? So, I want to talk about tribe. Yeah, yeah. Musically, and if I'm skipping moments in your career, it's only because that stuff is readily available for people to okay. to, to learn about. But am I being boring, guys? I'm okay, <laughs> okay. Just let me know. I'll, I'll pump it up. A little what was bit. what was the <laughs> What was the, uh, you know, what was the thought process going into the first Tribe album? Because it was such a different sound for hip-hop at the time. Yeah. I, I guess the thought process was I always wanted to make something as, as close to, like, the Beatles or Earth, Wind & Fire or Sly as possible for hip-hop. You know what I mean? I felt like that those kind of... That first album was kind of representative of that kind of energy. And to kind of really not try to, not purposefully try to fit into something, just be yourself. You know what I mean? And just, you know, be open. I think that first album was about those things, really. I mean, there's a, there's a you know, definitely a structure to it. It's all mm. sort of interconnected by mm. this recurring interlude yeah it's very uh, Jerome, yeah. very kind of dreamy and hypnotic mm. there's also uh i feel from listening to it now um you know there's a mellow side to it of course mm. you know there's a lot of sort of electric jazz grooves mm. but there's also uh, a sense of dynamics involved in it that i kind of still <laughs> feel is really unique for hip-hop mm. there's really quiet passages where things sort of disappear and then they come back mm. i mean my dad was a was a huge jazz guy. He was a huge like hard bop guy, like R. Blakey. He loved Miles, of course, like Eddie Locke, George Davis. Like he was just like on that. And you know, I could just remember as a kid hearing that stuff, and then um, hearing space in it. And then it wasn't until around that time I was making that album um, that. I was, I think I was reading a, a Miles Davis interview and he was talking about like how the musicality of space and how space is used. And I felt like at that, at that moment, you know, hip hop was, was, was still, fig we were still figuring out ourselves and getting our, you know, we were still like young fawns and stumbling a little, but it was a lot of frenetic stuff yeah. that was happening. The energy was like... So I was just like, man, let's just dig in. You know, it's it's what's between the, the notes, mm -hmm. you know, that makes it stick out. Like, and th that's why the Bonita style. When I first did Bonita, it was a straight rhyme, and then I came back to it maybe like a few months later, and I just kind of broke it down like a conversation because I just started thinking about space like that. You know what I mean? Just. It was there within me, but then the miles after hearing what he said about it, it became more defined, like, aha, you know what I mean? So space not only in an arrangement, in a, in a beat, but mm -hmm. vocally as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, what did you hear, you know, as far as your 
what did you hear as far as reaction to With this? With that? Yeah, just in I terms mean, of this album and its whole sort of energy. Well, the reaction was pretty good, you know, and it, it caught people off guard. I felt good because as a kid, I would be in the streets and I'd hear it come out of people's cars because that's how everybody was moving or whatever. You hear it like coming out of people's radios. You hear the album. The radio station started playing it. Then when you'd go and travel abroad and you see that it was happening kind of all over. So it was just a great feeling, you know what I mean? And um, like for people to kind of get certain things like that, like just, I feel like today's music is so like, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not, it's not wrong with that, you know. If that's your bag and that's the party, it's cool. But it's like dynamics to me. It's, and it's just my personal thing. And it depends on what it is, really. It's really subjective. But I just feel, for me, I like dynamics because if it's done in, a, in an honest way and if it's done within the integrity of the musical scope that you have laid out, and you dealing with dynamics and you're dealing with mood and and if it all connects it it makes it so much more potent you know so i'm i'm all, i'm still like having a a great joust with my friend dynamics you know <laughs> you know low end the theory totally different yeah totally and um yeah. obviously made it a very big impact mm-hmm. what was the mindset going into it was, that it was dre it was when i heard straight out of compton i was just like wow and i remember driving with ali i was like yo we gotta make some shit like th- like this like to hear that shit and we just we were kind of like one one of the few people in the in in new york riding around listening to that like loud like you know like straight out of compton do you know what i mean all that shit it was just like the energy of it, and they were dealing with dynamics as well. And it had it was frenetic, but the way, but Dre is such a master. Like the way that it was laid out, he took what PE was kind of doing, but he got to that whole bomb squad mentality a little bit before, and he just the tapestry that he laid out for those things. It was just still to this day, like I just get chills. And after you heard all of the. And I, I say this in a great way, but after you hear all the frills, the musical frills of that album, you know, the sections and the rhymes, the interplay between the MCs, between Cube and Easy, and the, the, the scratches, after you hear all of that, when it's off, what resonated was just that bottom, that bass, and the drive of it. I was like, yo, we gotta make some shit, be Like, but still maintain our thing, you know? So that was a big contributing factor. Do you remember the first songs off of that album that you made, you know, coming off of and that I inspiration? And I wish I would have bought it, yeah. The first, the first, the first things I, I, I remember making was this record, Mr. Incognito oh, okay. and Excursions, because they kind of had the same kind of drum beat. But those, those were the first things I was, like, kind of messing with. Yeah, and um, just the energy of that. Can you... Uh Talk a little bit about, you know, engineering-wise, mm. you know, Bob Power really kind of stepped up and became a little bit more mm-hmm. instrumental in what was going on. Or at least that's, you know, what we hear. Was mm. that, what, what was going on in the studio with you guys to try to, like, really get this low-end for low-end theory? Um, I mean, you know, I first, when I first met Bob, we were at uh, this place called Calliope Studios that was like on 37th Street and 8th. Still pretty seedy area sometimes. <laughs> it was even more back then, but I met him there. And um, he wasn't an engineer. He was like doing jingles in the back of the room. And he would occasionally engineer. And everybody was rocking with this one guy named Shane and this other girl named Sue. Like, and, you know, that was, like, the place where we all cut and stuff. And um, I remember Jungle couldn't, Jungle Brothers, I was in a session with them, and they couldn't get Shane, so they had Bob come in and sub for him. And, you know, Africa was doing the, the raps and whatever, and he messed up, and Bob would be on a talk back. Okay, you want to try another one? 
And he's like, yeah, so, okay, hold the, stand clear, hold on. And Africa would be laughing, like, because nobody's ever seen an engineer like that that would be all, like, really, like, about his shit. He'd be like, who is this dude, man? He's a fucking clown. Right? And so, basically, he was, you know, and, you know, Bob was very, okay, guys, do you want to do another one? I think that that sounds good. It seems like it hit the tape pretty good. Do you want to, would you like to do another one? Uh, you know, he was very clean and economic, and I was peeping him. So then I was like, yo, what, what's your name? And he was like, you know, he told me, he was like, hi, I'm Bob. And I was like, so do you, like, do, like, you just work? Oh, you know, I just do jingles and stuff, and sometimes I sleep with the guys, yeah. Okay, see you later. And so then I went into the front room, and Calliope had hanging all of the records, the discography. And one of the records was Stetsasonic. And I know Stetsasonic worked with Daylight because Daylight was cutting in here as well. And it was this one of my favorite Stetsasonic records, um, Go Stetsa. I looked on that and I was like, damn, I love that record. And I was talking to the guy. And I was like, that shit was a shit. So then about a week or so passed and I came back in and I was asking for something in the office and I looked up there again. I was like, yo, so y'all mixed that record here? And he's like, yeah, yeah. I was like, who mixed it? He was like, Bob Powell. I was like, word? <laughs> I was like, I need him on all my sessions. <laughs> and then that's just how it started with, 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 with he and I. And I would like play him my shit. I would tell him, you know, because I didn't really have the articulation. So I would tell him what I needed and wanted and stuff like that. And he was like, okay, okay. That sounds a little bit out of... Home, but I'll see what I could do. You know, he'd always like nestle in his opinion. <laughs> he would always go, which was sweet, you know what I mean? Because we're fucking 18, 19 years old, and you know, but he made it happen, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, the debate is always between uh, low end theory and midnight marauders. Um, and I mean, sonically, I mean, how do you compare the two? Because you know, they both have this impact. I, there was a lecture with Bob Power at the Academy several years ago, and he talks about he talks about how with Midnight Marauders it was meant to be grittier, in conceptually, um, and he felt that in a way he kind of messed that up because it sounds even more state of the art in a lot of ways. No, I don't. I don't think that that was the case. I think Midnight Marauders was meant to have that sheen that it has. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I thought that. Um, it was meant to, if anything, it was meant to be boomier, yeah. you know, in the tradition of low end. But it was, it was always meant to have like a nice sheen to that record. Because if you listen to low end theory, a lot of that sizzle, that 15k stuff, like for that 8k stuff, for all the engineers in here, like you, it's really hard to hear it. Maybe on the remastering, but when you listen to the original, like a lot of that top is. Muddled. We we did a lot of that record on the Neve, on the, what everybody calls the John Le the 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 John Lennon uh, Neve, because they had that in battery. So we did a lot of low end theory on that. But when we got to Midnight Marauders, we were on the SSL, and it had a little bit more sizzle up there. So it just has the the top. It just has a little bit more sheen. Yeah. Bob also did mention something about even like underlying those snares, these kicks with with extra sounds. Do you remember that in the? No, studio? yeah, I would yeah. double up on all that shit. I would have two and three kicks, like wow, like snares, like like mashed up. It depends, you know what I mean. I would like to stack things like that just to give it more. It's just about frequencies, you know, like. A certain snare can have, like we was talking about that sizzle, but then a certain snare could be more of like a a mid thing or a low mid thing and has a certain characteristic and, you know, it would call for whatever the music was. Like it's all, it's all working together, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So... You've been done at this point in your career in the mid-90s, you were doing quite a bit of outside production as well, away from Tribe on pretty important projects. Mm -hmm. When you produced One Love for Nas's Omatic, did you have any sort of idea of that, what kind of impact that album was going to make? Yeah, Nas was just like, you automatically knew. Like when, I, when, when Large Professor first played him for me, I mean, well, I heard him on the, on the barbecue, 
But then Lodge played me his shit. Like, I was like, cool, this dude is crazy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So then um, I was like, I got to get this dude some shit. So he came out by the crib. I, at this time, I had a little setup in Fife's crib in the basement. So he came through, him and Akinelli and Lodge, you know, and we blew a little something. It was summer or whatever. And I was like, so how you trying to approach it? He was like, oh, God, you know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to get that shit, that shit that you be fucking with, God. You know what I'm saying? Very Nas, you know, jazz man type shit. You know what I'm saying? I was like, true, true. I was like, man. And I just put, I, I just started fucking with it, like, right there. And it was just instant. He was like, oh, man. Yeah, let's go with that. And... um when we had the session and we went, we was in Battery, recorded in Battery. And he brought his book in and he just started spitting that shit. He spit it in the room first for everybody. It must have been about 10, 10 of us in there. And he spit that shit. The room was like silent and the speakers was rocking and he was just like, ah, like spitting that shit over that shit. I was like, man, it was crazy. And I had really... Finesse the drums yet But when I heard that rhyme He did it And then when I when After he laid it And I pumped the, the drums up It was just right It was just like One of those perfect sessions Was it um, You know the plan All along for you To do the chorus um, Yeah he was like Nah I need you on this Somehow God Just do the Do the chorus man You know what I'm saying So Yeah That was his thing Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you about this Because I want to Try to get a little bit of everything yeah. in. That, of course, is... <laughs> Mob Deep from the album The Infamous. Now, you came in on this project uh, kind of as the mixer, you know, fixer yeah. in a way. Yeah, shout out to Maddie C and Scott Free mm-hmm. with that loud records. They hit me up. <clears throat> I mentioned this just because this is such an iconic yeah. New York record, this album, and I don't know if everybody realizes that you had a role in this, you know, to the degree that you did. Yeah, yeah. They called me up and they was like, Yo, we had, you know, we really want you to work with Mob, you know. They fuck with you and I was like, Yeah, and Scott was my man and Maddie's my man, so I was like, Yeah, yeah. So we, we met up <clears throat> and they put us in the lab and I met with, with having them. I knew them from before. And um at the time, they had Shook One's part, part one out. And they just had, I think they just could have put, really Shook One's, the part two one, the one that really blew. Um, but I remember hearing part one, like, oh, this shit is mean. Um, so it was like right in between there. So um, I went in the studio with them and they played me some of their ideas and they were saying that they, you know, they just wanted me to like, do some additional production and mix and produce joints and just really bump it up and put some structure in it. Um, one of my favorite tracks off of it was Trife Life, just the sound of it. And I was really experimenting it because that was like one of, I mean, there was an engineer there, but he didn't really give a fuck. You know what I'm saying? Because their lifestyle, the way it was living there, you know, they were smoking and guns in the studio and drinking and arguments and fights and shooting dice. It was all of that. So the engineers was like, oh, fuck, I can't, I you know what I mean? So, you know, I had to kind of speak the language with the engineer and be like, well, actually, we have to be able to bounce this and make sure there's a, nah, my nigga, we gonna be good, my nigga, you know what I'm saying? And then we have to, you know, I had to kind of like negotiate between, <laughs> so the engineer kind of good. You know, his, his treads on his tires kind of wore out a little bit on that. You know what I'm saying? So I was left to kind of... It was really the first album that I really mixed. And I remember a very young um, Duro, Ken Duro Iffel, was a famous engineer. He was interning for me on that thing, on that album. And, um, you know, I remember, like, that was one that I really had a lot of mixing on. And Havoc is just an amazing talent like when he brought those songs in and I heard him I was like wow like and he'd be like yo son yo son yo check this shit out son 
And play it for me Yo son Yo just please Son like you just Just put that That shit You know what I'm saying Move the, move, move the drums this way son Like put your shit on it son You know what I'm saying we, 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 we spit the rhymes You know what I'm saying But just move that shit A little bit more Like on your side son <laughs> Like I'm like alright alright To the engineer Okay he wants me to do <laughs> So uh, You know it was a lot of that Kind of negotiation Going on there But it was I it was just a, a great learning experience for me in terms of mixing and engineering. And it was totally outside of what anybody probably, you know, the Nas thing was one thing, but this shit was like steeped in gangster rap, you know what I'm saying? So nobody really thought that I brought it out. And I remember saying, yo, I, I want you guys to bring, like, the thing that's going to make the dark record, record stand out more is that if you interject a little bit more, like, major chord shit in there, like, happier shit in there, and then y'all put that, y'all put the minor vibe on top of that. And they kind of got it. They were really astute musically, too, and had great, like, Prodigy was, like, the rhymes he was coming in with them was just so, like, ill. You know what I mean? So... I mixed probably like about five, six records on there and produced about three others, maybe three, four, uh, yeah, something like that. And I did additional production on a couple of things. So it was just great. And f to see that album be kind of have the accolades that it has and how, you know, steeped in, you know, celebration that that shit is, it's like great. What did you uh, learn when you first heard Jay Dilla and his music? Oh, well, when I, when I first heard J Jay Dilla, I was on tour. I was on Lollapalooza tour in 94. So when we started on the tour, this brother with a crazy big afro came by. And it was Amp Fiddler. And he was playing keyboards for Funkadelic. And he was just like, yo, I got, yo, it was a pleasure meeting you. I got, I got this kid. I really want you there. You're going to love him. He loves you. He looks up to you so much. I want you to meet him when we get to Detroit. And it's like, all right. We had like 12 cities to get to Detroit. And each day he would still come and say the same thing to me. <laughs> like, yo, man, Detroit's coming up. Man. Like, so we finally get there. And we perform or whatever. And then he was like, yo, you ready? We'll meet him. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm on a tour bus. You just got off, whatever. And then... He comes on, I remember Dilla had on some glasses, and he came on smiling. The first thing I saw was a smile. It was like, oh, man, oh, man. I was like, oh, what's up, man? And he gave me his tape personally. And we were doing uh, secondary shows in certain markets with Dela. And um, I started listening to it in the back. You know, I had my whole setup in the back of the bus. And, I, you know, he, whatever, we're driving off to the next city. And that night, I was listening to it, and I was like, oh, what the fuck is this shit? And it was a Slum Village demo. And I was like, damn, this shit is crushing. And then I looked around to see if anybody was around. I was like, this is ill. So then we got to the next city. We had a show with Dayla. So me and Plug 2, we was blowing or something. I was like, yo, come here, man. And I took him to the bus and shit. And I was like, yo, listen to this shit. And he played it. You know, Dave had this tooth that was missing. And he used to always laugh. He used to cover his shit like this. <laughs> so we listened to it. He's like, oh, shit. <laughs> and he was, the first he was the first person that I played Dilla shit for. I was like, yo, this dude is ill, right? He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, yo, he sounds like your shit, but... Just better. <laughs> and I was like, okay, thanks. But I was like, yo, man, I gotta, I gotta like, I gotta like do something with this kid to bring him out. Like people need to hear shit. Then slowly but surely I started playing it for people. And um, you know, I then I reached I called the house, his house, because he had his number on there. I was like, yo, man, people gotta hear your shit somehow. We gotta figure something out. We gotta work, man. You know what I mean? And um we started to put together the Uma. At the time, the Uma, because I played it for D'Angelo. So the Uma was supposed to be D'Angelo, myself, Ali, Raphael, Sadiq, and Dilla. 
And at the time, you know, the Trackmasters was out pumping. You know, of course, you had the Bomb Squad. You had different production crews that consisted of three or four men teams. So I was thinking this could be like our version of that. You know what I mean? Like all of the, the Tri-Core Quest albums, like those, especially the first three, I was always about the unit. So I never... I never put on the, those on low end theory produced by Q Tip or, you know what I mean? Because I I it wasn't about that. So I I was about to try. So I just put produced by a child called Quest. You know what I'm saying? And that was kind of the aesthetic that I had for the Uma, like the unit. You know what I mean? What what was it specifically that you heard that he was doing at that time on that tape that was so revolutionary to you? I mean, it was just. <laughs> The way he had shit EQ'd, the way that the, it was programmed, the feeling of it was the most authentic feeling. He he was programming it, but it just felt live, the swing of it. You know, his time signature on that, the way that he had, like, the swing percentages on his beats and shit. Like, the way he just... The way he had the music partitioned, he had bass where it needed to be. The kick was where it needed to be. The hi-hat was where it was needed. The music, he was just clean. Yeah. You know what I mean? But still had, he had an understanding of it that he could manipulate it any way that he wanted to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when you formed the, the OMA mm-hmm. then and you started working on the Tribe albums and yeah. stuff like that, how did that how did how was that process like? What, um, you know, who, his pro- who, how was it divvied up in a way? I guess. Yeah, I mean, I was just you know bringing it into the guys, and they were saying what they liked and all that stuff. And you know, for a while he was he was he was an introvert with people he didn't really know or didn't really. You know what I'm saying? So he would just send me the beats, and then I would lay them. He wouldn't really mix them. He could mix, though. He was totally capable, but sometimes he didn't feel like coming to New York or something like that, so he'd say, nah, go ahead, you know? And that's usually how, you know, they wound up like that. You know, Fife and Ali, they would say, oh, this is good and whatever, you know what I mean? So it was like we all would, by committee, decide which ones on those albums would would go and it was the same like I would play stuff for De La and then eventually De La had their own you know relationship with him Farside I played shit for Farside that's how they knew it Busta I remember Common was at my house and that's how he met Dilla cause Dilla was staying at the crib so I told Common to come through and that's how he met him yeah so so then how often did he come to New York to work with you guys uh, in he the studio stayed, he 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 there was a period where he stayed at the crib, you know what I mean? And I was like, I don't know. I want to say like he was going back and forth within a year's time period, but probably stayed in New York probably like three months at a time or something like a two months at a time, but back and forth. I'm curious to know if, and I guess I'm talking about the love movement as well here. Yeah. Is there is there a pronounced slum? I see you looking at my notes. Um, is there... Is there a slum influence on those albums in terms of composition, not only just in terms of his production? Is that something, uh, if someone yeah, was to yeah, conjecture yeah. that, would that be fair? Definitely, I think that there was uh, uh, that kind of influence because of like, you know, like if you listen to the choruses, uh, fantastic, you know, sometimes the, the trial choruses would, would have those kind of rhythms or those same kind of like, um, um, you know that same, same rhythmic yeah it, we we would have the same kind of approach to some of that stuff too mm-hmm. as well yeah i mean in retrospect do you think that was a good fit or do you think that i do you yeah. know people people tend to say that beach rhymes in life or love movement was like weak and all of that stuff i dig it i mean i still listen back to some of it and it's like it's not a whack Shit, you know what I'm saying? I'm sorry, I, that's just me. Like, I don't think Dilla could ever really be whack, or um, it was just different for people. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was hard for them. 
it was hard for them to to swallow within the tribe thing. You know what I'm saying? But I think that those records are still strong to me. How how do you think that you influenced him? I mean, he was somebody who looked up to you. I mean, you can say we can sit here and say, okay, he came in and created a different sound for Tribe, mm-hmm. and you can see that influence. And obviously, people have been talking about his influence on production. I mean, Questlove was here a few days ago, you know, on his drumming, you know, even the influence of him. But how do you think you might have influenced him? I don't know. You know, he's, he would always tell me that. I mean, I, just, I guess the similarities would probably be in choices and decisions we would make. Like... Not only in type of music, but just like, because we definitely, we would do beats and pull similar shit, you know what I'm saying? Um, gosh, I wish sometimes that I would have recorded a video of some of that shit that we was doing. But, um, you know, we just had kind of similar taste and hear things kind of in the same way. His, his hearing, though, was like... His shit was like some underwater, like subterranean shit. Like he would hear the fucking, you know, he would hear like, I don't know, the burping of a baby whale like 4,000 miles away. Like, yo, you heard that? <laughs> like he's like, he was, he had that kind of keen shit. You know what I mean? What was Buddy Lee? Uh, Buddy Lee was the project that he and I were going to do. Like... I remember he he had did donuts a while a while ago, like the whole thing, right? Before he passed. And then one of the last times when he was well that I spoke to him, he was like, Man, we got to do this Buddy Lee album. And that was like he and I finally doing an album together was just like the two of us rhyming and doing the whole album and you know, unfortunately that didn't, you know, happen but that was the plan. And that was like right after he finished doing all those beats on the donut thing. Um, what do you, I'm curious to know what you make of this whole sort of cult of Dilla. I mean, obviously you were close with him and worked mm-hmm. with him, you know, for years and years in Tribe and as well as after. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of this legendary status uh, that some people have mixed feelings about in some ways. Really how? Well, I don't know. If it's more become more of a trendy thing rather than based on people who are genuinely fans of his music. I just yeah. wonder if you had any feelings on that. I guess that that's the case. That's the time we're in, you know. It's important to give people the flowers while they're here, you know what I mean? But, you know, when you... Somebody said one time, it was horrible, I thought, but it it still struck me. And I think the subject... Uh, they were talking about like either Jim Morrison, or Jimi Hendrix, or whatever, or something like that. And they said it's sexier, it's sexier when you when you die famous, or something to that shit. That that just, but it's it kind of spoke to something that's real in a way. You know what I mean? Um, I think with him, I I I'm I'm all for anything that's gonna have people discover his music and discover his greatness. But truly discover it. Don't just like wear the shirt and and go to you know every February go to every Dilla event and Instagram it and act like you know what it is and you know say shit like you could tell I'm a real Dilla fan because I hate Q-tip or something. <laughs> I don't know whatever. You know what I mean? Like just just get into the music. You know what I mean? And let that like, let that serve you and guide you. You know what I'm saying. So, if it brings people to him, I'm all for it. As long as people go all the way with him, because that's probably what he would have wanted. What are your memories of working with him on Amplified? You guys pretty much yeah, worked on all, that, almost yeah, we everything did it all together. together. Yeah, 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 that was fun. That was a lot of fun. I remember after I did um, Vibrant thing, he was calling me like, yo. He says, oh, you want to play? <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, we just we just kept volleying and he just was bringing that shit. And it was just, it was fun. That was fun. I think that's probably the most fun that we had, you know. Because after at that point, you know, he, 
he was there was no more Uma. Yeah. There was no more Slum Village. He was fucking with he's just I think probably had met Malib around then. Like he was doing his thing. I was doing my thing, whatever. And that was just like we was just doing music. You know what I'm saying? So it was cool. For you, coming off of the whole tribe legacy, mm-hmm. you know, what was your philosophy going into doing that? You know, it was your first solo endeavor? Um, doing Amplified? Yeah. It was, uh, it was a little, it was, you know, it was definitely a little jarring because it wasn't the same situation, a scenario, a setup that it was for so many years with Tribe. So, didn't really know what to do, so I just tried to focus on just starting at zero and just kind of not being the conscious rapper or being any of those stigmas that attached the backpack whatever people call native whatever i just wanted to step away from that you know because that trying to continue to do that is like i mean we built something that was pretty hefty that influenced so many people and I didn't you know I was just like you know let that be there let's just start something else the funny thing is when I you know look up online or something like that just the way people contextualize things especially that album it's kind of thought of as at the time the flashy album Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I go back and listen to some of it and it seems like a, a real continuation of what you were doing I wonder if that you know how you felt about that sort of feedback from people at the time, if if you encountered it at the time. I you thought know? it was a little uninformed because people just gravitated to the image of the videos, a vibrant thing and breathe and stop. So they didn't really get the whole thing, like things we do, uh, do it, be it, see it, or you know what I mean. Like they didn't really delve in; they just judged the cover, kind of. You know what I mean? So. You know, but hey, it's part of the course of show business, so you take your lumps, mm-hmm. you know. Um, did you feel after that album that you were restricted in some way with, with where hip-hop was? Because you, you actually went quite experimental with the next project, with the Kamali Abstract Yeah, album. yeah, I kind of did a... I, I just went totally... Because I, I, I think what I was feeling at that time was... When I got to Aris, the Clive Davis signed me over there. We did the Amplified album. I remember talking to him when I was doing the Amplified album, and I was saying to him, yo, I want to put together a band. I don't think anybody's doing it, but not like just like a band band, but like I want to do like Bitches Brew type thing. And I remember he and I having like hours and hours of conversation, Clive Davis and I, about that. He was like, wow, this would be great. He, you know, he really dug it. So then I started um, going out to, like, jazz clubs. Like, I kind of grew a beard. I started eating fucking vegan food and shit. <laughs> I was like, fuck everything. I'm going to do this band. And... um you can keep your girls and your cars and your money. So um, I kind of just, I just kind of just went off the grid for a while. And uh, dear friend Weldon Irvine, who was from around the way, and he was one of my mentors. He and I would talk about music for hours, and uh, we talk about theory. And I started taking up piano. And music theory, I started learning music. I just didn't, after Amplified, I was just like, you know, I just want to continue to bring the odometer back. And um, I just kind of took a couple of years off. Not really, I was working, but I was just developing another side. And um, it was humbling, and it was great, and I just started little by little meeting different musicians and going to jams and hanging out till three in the morning, doing it in the city, going to Philly, going to DC, like just moving around and just seeing different people and different musicians and vibing. And I bought pianos and guitars and all sorts of keys and just, just really got into it. And also around the time of Amplified, right around that time, like I had a fire 
and I had about maybe close to 20,000 records. I had all of the shit I worked on with Dilla, like all tribe, like everything, like crazy shit. And I lost everything. And I was in the house and um, it just... Which just everything was just gone. It was just an interesting time for me at that period. It was, it was crazy because they was you know it was in the news a little bit and Jay Leno was making jokes about the shit and all this crazy shit. So I was like, damn. And I was driving down Lafayette. And I was with my girl and we was because I had to stay at a hotel for a little while. So I was going to the hotel and I saw KRS. And he was like, uh, yo, <laughs> you know, very KRS, if you guys are in KRS, one from Boogie Dare Productions, yo, I heard you had a fire. I was like, I mean, I still smelt, you could still smell, smell the embers was burning on my fucking shoulders and shit. Like while he's talking to me, I'm still smoldering. I got, like, black spots on my face and shit. My girl is angry at me, sitting next to me and shit. We all smell smoky and shit. I'm like, yeah, Chris, we had a fire, man. Oh, man. But, but that's good. You know, fire is cleansing. <laughs> and I was just like, hmm. You know what I mean? Like, at first, you know, your first reaction is like, uh, I love you, want to give you a legend, but please. You know what I mean? <laughs> but then, you know, you contemplate with that little simple thing. And he just kind of, I remember we just said something, so you all right? Da, 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 and then he just darted off into the city. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that whole process kind of was a, a, a cleansing thing for me. You know what I'm saying? So between that fire and talking to Weldon and, Learning theory and taking a piano and I studied drums with Omar Hakim and doing all of that stuff and talking to Clive Davis about it, I just really started to f understand the music I used to do and the music I wanted to do, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that kind of informed me to where I'm at right now. What level of musicianship would you categorize yourself at this point? Uh... Kindergarten <laughs> or preschool, <laughs> yeah. Nah, but I'm alright. I mean, I, yeah. I, you know, I know the language. I could move around and stuff. But it, it just really opened me up like crazy. Yeah. yeah. And on the Renaissance, I'm mean, skipping ahead a little bit. Mm -hmm. But on the Renaissance, then that you do integrate quite a bit of live musicianship with with what you're doing as well. Yeah. I imagine, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, on the Renaissance, you know, I have Robert Glasper, who was playing with me for a little bit. My boy, Mark Holmberg. I had uh, Josh David, who was playing the bass. I had uh, Chris Scholar and Kurt Rosenwinkel on guitar and stuff like that. So I've worked with, with those cats. Those are like my cats, Louis Cato and Ray Angry sometimes. You know, those are like my guys I vibe with, like my core band I've been working with for probably like 12 years. Yeah. I mean, you've, you know, since Amplified, you know, up to date, you've had officially three albums out. That's 11 years or so, right? Uh, not, not always by your choice, but is there some benefit to that? Um, is there some benefit to having this kind of gestation period creatively, you know, to work on things? Yeah, I guess so, but I'm going to step it up a little bit more because I don't have that much time left on this planet, you know what I'm saying? And it's not it's not promised, so I'm trying to, like, striving to keep it yeah. a little bit more frequent, yeah. you know? But, um, yeah, there's benefits to it, of course, and there's also bad things to it, you know? But, you know, when you're an artist, you just have to kind of keep to that environment and kind of just like just navigate mm -hmm. you know what I mean mm -hmm. and it's humbling you know what I'm saying definitely humbling like having those periods like that well 
This is the last lecture of Red Bull Music Academy, 2013, New York City. And I think we did a nice job with this gentleman over here. So I want to say thanks to Q-Tip. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world-traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in New York. But we do events around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion anyway. If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Thanks for listening.